Welcome to the MedTech Talk Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and I'm very excited to have Justin Baran, CEO of OsoVR, with us today. The role of virtual reality is pushing past traditional gaming into industrial applications. And OsoVR is really at the forefront of this, forging a fascinating path into the world of medical training and education. Justin brings a particularly unique background as a gamer, a physician, and now melding his various interests as an entrepreneur. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, great. This is uh, such a fascinating topic. Like probably many people listening, you know, I've been a part of uh, many training labs from cadavers to bone models and beyond. And and you kind of feel the limitations when you've been in those uh, settings. Uh, it, it can be wildly inefficient and face serious limitations in terms of how scalable and measurable uh, the training is. So it just feels, inc- you know, incredibly uh, relevant and timely, uh, particularly today as we uh, enter situations that are ever more remote. Uh, that OCVR is really aiming to change a lot of that. So, so maybe though. To get us started here, you can give listeners an overview of really how you're bringing virtual reality into surgical training and assessment, um, and we'll jump into it from there. Great. You know, it really starts with my personal career journey and the problems that I experienced firsthand. So, like you said, I originally started out in the world of gaming. Um, I was studying computer science and uh, had the opportunity to work at Activision. And I got interested in healthcare because of a sick family member. And I started to wonder if there was a way to use software and technology to help people instead of just entertainment. Um, So I pivoted to biomedical engineering with the goal to invent healthcare technology but I didn't really know how to get started with invention. And I was discussing this with a mentor when he told me, if you want to invent something, you need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he felt that the best way to understand medical problems was to be a doctor and be on the front lines, taking care of patients and seeing what works and what doesn't. So I took his advice very literally. Uh, He helped me get into medical school at UCLA. And then I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training, which is really where I started noticing a big problem, which is how we train and assess our healthcare professionals with their technical skills, like surgery. And I would be in procedure after procedure at these top hospitals where Sometimes people would say, hey, Justin, you know, scrub out and and Google what to do. We're stuck. You know, we need to find an instruction manual or YouTube video. And uh, to me, it kind of raised an eyebrow or two. And what I noticed that was going on was really three core uh, dynamics. The first is that there's too much to learn. So we're victims of our own success in a way. Accelerating science and technology, the work that you and I do, is massively expanding the library of procedures that healthcare professionals are expected to know how to do in a moment's notice. As sort of an extreme example, I always tell the story how one day I was called to the zoo to operate on a gorilla, not knowing anything about gorilla anatomy or gorillas. And uh, that was a really interesting experience, but just highlights how on any given day, you really don't know what you're gonna deal with as a doctor or healthcare professional for that matter. The second part of the problem is that surgery is getting more complicated. Newer devices like robotics, navigation, minimally invasive techniques have longer learning curves. So instead of 10 to 20 cases, you're looking more like 50 to 100. So really an order of magnitude. And then the final thing, 
Um, and most people don't know this outside of healthcare, but there is little to no assessment of technical skills that takes place uh, for surgeons and in healthcare. This is starting to change, but uh, in general, there, there's minimal. So in my career as a surgeon, and I still practice on weekends, uh, I've only been assessed one time. Uh, I was interviewing for a residency spot and I was asked to play the board game operation and to remove a plastic piece without buzzing. So it was basically seeing all of this firsthand and also having background in game development that I got introduced to virtual reality very early in its development and immediately recognized its ability to solve this problem. You can use it anytime and anywhere. You can train on any procedure. You can use your hands in a realistic way. You can train remotely or train as a team, and then you can get objective assessment. And so that's really how the concept for Oso VR was born. And uh, when Osovir got started, which is October 2016, we were really in a state where the practices that we were uh, doing in terms of training and assessment were unsustainable. So the American Association of Medical Colleges uh, estimated we we're going to be over 100,000 healthcare providers short within a decade. 31% uh, of graduating residents after 14 years of education could not operate without supervision and required additional years of training. And lower skilled surgeons had five times higher mortality rates than their higher skilled counterparts, as reported by the New England Journal of Medicine. And so we already were on sort of a pretty bad path. And then you throw COVID in the mix, as you mentioned, and everything just got accelerated. And so the main way, especially after we're done with our formal training and residency and fellowship as surgeons that we get practice are, as you mentioned, at in-person events courses and conferences, often sometimes with hundreds, if not thousands of people. So that's something that is very difficult to impossible to do right now. And we don't really know what the future is going to look like, uh, the so-called new normal. So that's where we've seen interest really skyrocket in the ability to train remotely without needing to be physically present with others on these newer emerging medical technologies and procedures. Yeah, that really resonates. And maybe just to give people a sense of what this involves, could you just describe what what your system is like? What if uh, I'm a surgeon looking to get trained on it? T tell us what it's all about and what you can do, and you know how uh, I guess real the experience is. Yeah, I'm happy to describe it. So, you know, if any of the listeners are familiar with Oculus Quest or Quest 2, what it is, is there is a virtual reality head mounted display, which almost looks like a pair of ski goggles. Uh, most people at this point have tried some form of virtual reality, maybe even Google Cardboard back in the day. And in your hands, you hold um, what are called the Oculus Touch controllers. Um, these are controllers that contain cutaneous haptic feedback and also track the 3D position of your hands and allow you to interact with the virtual environment. So you can look around all around you, you can interact and you're picking up tools, scalpel, electrocautery, in orthopedics case, you're picking up a drill hammer, utilizing fluoroscopy, x-ray, et cetera, et cetera, and running through a procedure either by yourself or with a team and then getting assessed in terms of how your performance was and then sort of tips and guidance on how to improve to meet certain proficiency standards uh, to move on to whatever sort of the next step of your training. And in terms of you ask about realism, I'd say it is uh, incredibly realistic, certainly from a visual standpoint. Um, you know, we have a team, uh, some of whom have been on teams that have won Oscars and Emmys for their work, who come from Industrial Light and Magic, Apple, Microsoft, and the world's largest medical illustration team, who have created what uh, to me are just 
unbelievably astounding uh, visuals. The visual fidelity is, is really unparalleled, and I highly recommend uh, anyone check out our website or YouTube page to get an idea of what I'm talking about here. In terms of the feel, right, this is often something that people ask about. In, in certain cases, it is highly realistic. So if you are interacting with the anatomy, like you're drilling through bone or you're dissecting tissue, you get this cutaneous haptic feedback, which is educational. So it's goal-directed haptic feedback. You're trying to uh, communicate a specific learning outcome. Um, but in certain aspects, it's not 100% realistic. This is not designed to 100% replace in-person training or actual surgery. It is designed to make those experiences much uh much more effective, um, and also to provide objective assessment. Now, in certain situations, we are actually fully replacing in-person training, but I would say right now that's more the exception than the rule. But we are seeing over time that our software and the technology that it runs on off-the-shelf VR hardware like Oculus is uh, accelerating at an astounding rate. So it's hard to say exactly where this is going to go in terms of fidelity, but I imagine it's going to continue to improve and disrupt some of the physical training activities that we've been doing. Yeah, it's really amazing. And, you know, as the company's name suggests, I mean, certainly orthopedics and your own training, orthopedics is a, a natural fit there. But uh, are you extending into different specialties? I mean, how broadly can you go? Can it really be any procedure ultimately? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, we definitely got our start in orthopedics, um, both because of my personal bias and background, but also because of the need. Um, so they're really... Wall simulation has existed for some time um, in a much more expensive, bulky form factor. In orthopedics, especially non-arthroscopic surgery, so there have been arthroscopic uh, simulators around for a while, there, there really hasn't been anything. So there was a really big opportunity uh, where it was kind of green field, uh, as you say. Um, but what OsaVR really is at its core is an underlying technology that allows us to scalably produce effective VR surgical training content. And so... Uh, as we've begun to scale as a company, and we're currently being used in 20 countries, we have over 60 team members, over 70 different procedures on the platform, we started to ask, can we apply this simulation methodology and this underlying platform that we built to other specialties? So we started looking at endovascular surgery, structural heart, robotics, thoracic surgery. And what we found is that the answer is yes, this is widely applicable. And what the technology really is doing is it is teaching you the steps to these procedures and allowing you to memorize it with very high retention. It is assessing your ability to do specific steps well and accurately. It's teaching you 3D spatial concepts and also how to be efficient. Now, what the technology is not is, once again, this is not a 100% realistic full fidelity simulation. You can't just like take a body and dissect it wherever and you're not being taught how to dissect or spread scissors and things like that. We're, we're very focused on what the technology does well and less focused on what it doesn't. And this is really a new way of thinking in the world of simulation where in, in the past I felt that simulation uh, pushed for realism for the sake of realism. And it deprioritized education and usability. Whereas we are focused on being as realistic as possible, certainly, but 
always prioritizing education and keying in on what are the desired learning outcomes and skill transfer that we want to see after someone completes a training curriculum, um, and also usability. Like it needs to be engaging and fun and easy to use. And simulators of the past haven't necessarily been that way. Uh, but our entire team comes from you know AAA gaming and movie special effects, so they they have a background in how to make things fun and very engaging. Yeah, and there seems to be so many different uh, ways to, to use this. I mean, certainly at, I'd, I'd imagine residency and, and fellowship, but also, you know, in our business in particular, we're introducing new procedures all the time to, you know, docs who are well-established. Uh, do, you, do you see that as an avenue for, you know, not only training the, the folks in their, who are in their training, but, but also the docs who are out there, maybe experts in their given field, but learning a new technique for a new procedure? Absolutely. I mean, this is a very big challenge um, in terms of being a physician in today's world is that, once again, we're victims of our own success. There's so much technology out there that there, there are kind of two key challenges. The first is technology exploration. So how do you even know what's available? Like it's, you know, you can look online and kind of see things, but it's, it's hard to get a sense of what a technology actually does, how it's utilized until you can use it yourself. And the way that we've done that in the past is attending courses or conferences, uh, which was already hard to do. You know, you could only get a very small window into this world and now it is uh, near impossible. And for, for residents as well and, and surgeons in training, it's very difficult because you are kind of restricted in a way to whatever technology your training program utilizes. So you're missing out on really a huge slice of the technological landscape. And many people graduate feeling underprepared, like they don't know what's out there. They can't even talk to the solutions um, and deeply understand that. So the ability to even just try the technologies and deeply understand what they do, how they're utilized, what the value is for you and the patient is a huge advantage. And, you know, to me, very exciting. So I can always be sure that I'm bringing my patients the very best. And then the next step is actually being able to effectively, effectively utilize those technologies. Once again, it was so hard to even make it to a course back in the day. Um, I remember uh, as a fellow, I really wanted to learn how to use what's called a Taylor spatial frame, which is an external fixation uh, system that corrects complex lower extremity deformities. And I just, I was always working on the weekend. So I was never able to attend a course. So, you know, pre-COVID, it was already very hard to make it to these things. And now, you know, near impossible and they're not even available. So not only having the ability to get introduced to a device, but to train up, become proficient to an extent, and in some cases, obviate the need for in-person training and in others to make that in-person training much more efficient. So for example, to learn how to use an external frame system, sometimes you'd need to go to two to three courses before you felt ready enough. And ideally with OSO VR, you'd only maybe need to go to one or no courses depending on your level of experience. So um, I can't highlight enough. Um, I find that our system of education really kind of almost overlooks technology in a way. Um, and that I, I'm really pushing for technology exploration and technology surveys to be a bigger part of our formal training so that we are better prepared for sort of emerging into the world knowing what's out there. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense to me. And you know, another thing it makes me think of, and I wonder if you feel like this is a possible direction of the technology is, you know, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if surgeons had a chance to kind of practice on a particularly challenging case before they actually do the case. Is that a possibility with this sort of technology that you could actually be sort of patient specific for challenging cases or, or is, that, is that a bridge too far? 
No, it's it's definitely possible, and there are a wide variety of scenarios that we can simulate. You know, what you're describing is what's called mission rehearsal, um, or a, you know, a combo of that and surgical planning, where you can simulate a case on the specific anatomy that you're about to walk into, and that is uh, certainly something the platform is capable of. But I think what's really interesting that you bring up is. You know, in the in the early days of this technology, uh, there was some pushback. You know, usually for more experienced surgeons that say, you know, nothing will replace in person and hands on training. Which I mean, I believe too, as a surgeon, like that is a critical component. But I also point out that it's not perfect. And so, you know, other than the need to be physically present and the cost and the difficulty of working with cadavers uh, or even you know what's called like sawbones or physical simulations. Almost never will those simulation labs have the pathology you'll actually be operating on. So to give you an example, you know, if I'm practicing a scoliosis procedure on a cadaver, that cadaver is not going to have scoliosis, right? Mm -hmm. Almost never. And so you actually are having a major drawback in your training experience because you're not training on the actual pathology. And, you know, in that case where you introduce deformity, there are 3D spatial concepts that are really important to get down that you don't have the opportunity to practice before you get in front of a real patient. So one of the advantages this platform provides is not only the repeatability, but the ability to incorporate rarely seen or um, cases and deformity and pathology so you can practice on what you'll actually be operating on uh, in the operating room. Yeah, and I'm struck by some of the data you guys have generated and how impactful uh, it is. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've been able to demonstrate for where you've been, where you've been able to introduce this sort of training. Absolutely. You know, to me, I actually, to start this company, had to walk away from full-time academic medicine, which is a really difficult and big personal decision. So I didn't want to make a big sacrifice like that for something that was just a cool marketing tool or kind of a gimmick. I wanted to make sure that this works, that this is going to solve the problem. So very early on, we really prioritized independent clinical validation of our platform. So the first study was performed at UCLA where they took 20 trainees, 10 were trained in OSOVR to a set level of proficiency, and 10 were trained traditionally. So this includes lecture, technique guide, list of steps, illustrations. And Every single trainee ran through a test run of the procedure and they were filmed. And then a blinded observer rated their performance using a scale called OSATS, which is the Objective Structured Assessment of Technical Skill. What they found in that study is that in every single category of OSATS, which are things like time and motion and flow and are rated from one to five, with five being best, the OSOVR trained and assessed individuals performed significantly better than the traditionally trained one for a total improvement of 10 points or 230% improvement between the two groups. And one of the things I really remarked from the study, like the take-home point for me, is that in one group, you had individuals who could take as much time as they needed to prepare, and they came into the test environment when they felt ready. And in the other group, you had individuals who came into the test environment when they were objectively measured to be ready. And what reality is and how we feel are often quite different. And this study really spelled that out for me is that in the world of surgery and medicine, when it comes to technical skills, we are very subjective and intuition-based right now. We are allowing people to do procedures when we feel that they're ready or we feel that we're ready. And this study to me says that that might not be the best marker. We need more objective metrics to allow us to perform certain procedures on patients uh, to ensure we're meeting some sort of quality standard. So that was published in the Journal of Surgical Education, uh, actually at the beginning of this year. Um, and 
We actually later in the year had a study published in a top five orthopedic journal core that showed the ability to complete a procedure without meaningful supervision increased by 306% when trained and assessed in OSO VR. So it went from 25% to about 78%. So remember earlier in our conversation, I discussed that 31% of graduating residents cannot operate without meaningful supervision. Well, this study seems to show that we can have a major impact on that value. Or, you know, if you're having someone come to, say, a Sawbones lab or a cadaver lab, you know, I often feel that when I come into these environments, these labs, and I don't really deeply understand the procedure ahead of time, I'm being spoon-fed, like people are just handing me instruments because they want it to go well for me, but I'm not retaining anything, and I'm not really doing the surgery myself. And it would be a much better experience if I already knew exactly what to do, and then I could just run through the procedure and get feedback on my performance instead of just being told step-by-step step what to do uh, in a way that's going to probably fly out the other side of my ear just uh, that night uh, whenever we celebrate and have our, our lobster and wine dinner. So um, that to me is also something that this study strongly supports. Um, and we've had multiple additional studies that are being submitted for publication. Uh, we have a motion tracking study that shows that, you know, when you're operating in the VR environment, it's almost indistinguishable from the motions that you're doing in a real surgery. Uh, so that's a really exciting study we're submitting for publication. Another study that we're submitting shows that 100% of the residents at a residency program, so 22% found OsoVR to be effective, would recommend it to their peers, and also found it to be intuitive and usable. And then we have a third study that was presented as a poster what I believe is currently the world's largest uh, VR validation study to date, so had 38 participants, which once again showed that OsoVR across the board was more effective than traditional training and many more studies to come. And I think we're at the point where it's clear that OsoVR is effective. It's been pretty consistent in a lot of peer-reviewed, independently performed validation studies. An important thing to take home is that uh, VR has the potential to be effective, but OSO VR, not all VR is created equal. And the way that we do simulation at OSO is, is pretty unique. And it's something that we came up with with our background in medicine, uh, uh, gaming, and adult learning. But the next steps is, okay, we know VR works. We know VR leads to skill transfer. Let's see its effect on OR efficiency. Let's see its effect on patients. Like, let's see how patient outcomes are. This is kind of the holy grail of a scalable simulation platform. So these are things that we're starting to look at in larger trials in partnership with academic institutions that we're all very excited about. Well, yeah, that's terrific. And it's great to hear you're pushing forward to that, that next uh, step. The other thing it brings to mind for me is just sort of the, you know, and I'm going to hopefully not uh, indicate how old I am in this, but <laughs> if I compare myself to my kids, for example, uh, in my facility with, um, uh, you know, digital technology or even gaming uh, technology, you know, there's a big difference between what my kids who've grown up with it can do and, and certainly what I can do. And I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, your experience as you go out into uh, the world with this, if you, if you see a real difference according to age level in terms of how effective the, the VR training is? It's, a, it's an interesting question, and we do get that quite a bit. Um, I, I would say I don't have objective data on this, but there's less of a difference than you'd think. I would say that more experienced seasoned surgeons they are often more skeptical, for sure. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But when they try the technology, uh, pretty much across the board, one is they they don't seem to have any difficulty using it, and two that they immediately recognize its 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 value and glom onto it. Not everybody, but um, most. And um, it's it wasn't as big of a difference as I thought it would be. That being said, 
Um, I do think there is an incredible affinity of the incoming generation to these types of technologies. But I think more importantly, what I've sensed is that there's a bit of an expectation that uh, this kind of upcoming generation just expects that this technology will be available to them and that that's how training and assessment works. And it's been surprising to me that, you know, when I show them OSA, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, like, how else would you do it? That's something also that we just need to be prepared for because um, we don't really want to disappoint this generation of surgeons because we really need to continue to attract people in the field because of all of the challenges we have uh, now in the complexity of our healthcare system. I do worry that you know, we want to make it continue to be an attractive and premier profession for people. Yeah. And, and given the n- number of applications uh, of this, I mean, we, we've talked about a handful introducing new uh, new procedures and new technology, training of residents and fellows, assessment. I can imagine that there's a lot of um, discussion that you've had over the years as you've, as you've uh, built this company as to what the right business model is, what the right revenue model is. I mean, do you, do you charge hospitals? Do you charge uh, medical device companies? Uh, t- talk about, or is it all of the above? Talk about how you've thought through kind of the, the business model for this. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question. And, you know, anyone starting any uh, company, certainly a venture scale company, needs to uh, have a long, hard think about this because early decisions can have really uh, major ramifications and, and focus is really critical. I tried to take a lot of lessons from just sort of general technology. You know, you look at Facebook or PayPal intentionally restricting themselves to the early markets and users that they targeted. So uh, with Facebook, it was colleges and very specific colleges, right? They only let certain colleges on the platform uh, at a given pace. Um, so they control the expansion and were able to scale responsibly. Um, Or you look at PayPal that really they wanted to target high volume sellers and they they were confident that if they could meet the needs of that user group, everyone would follow. Um, And that, as we know, really paid off, no pun intended. And so I was trying to think like, you know, who who is our college? Who is our high uh, volume seller? And I had the luxury of, you know, simulation is not new. Um, it is. This is a new form factor for simulation in terms of modern off-the-shelf VR. But we have about 10 to 20 years of surgical simulation and about 50 years of simulation in medicine and anesthesia uh, to go off of. And uh, what I found is that selling to hospitals and healthcare institutions, while certainly there is a value proposition there, it is at a small scale, not need to have. It is not existential, right? Like if I sell one VR headset to a hospital, it's not gonna meaningfully impact their revenue, their cost, quality of care, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I was personally experiencing that medical device companies were investing a lot of time and money into me, flying me around on private planes, taking me to courses, trying to get me proficient on their newer technologies um, at hands-on courses, which were really, it's so great to get hands-on experience, but the thing is, it's not enough. You get one to two repetitions on these complex technologies that have learning curves between 50 and 100 cases, and you're often not doing the actual surgery until months after the training event. So, you know, you're in the operating room, trying to use this technology used once six months ago, it's not going to go very well. And it leaves kind of a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And so I thought to myself, well, here is a really exciting opportunity where these companies probably don't care in, you know, in the early days of VR, it it looked very different from how it was now. It was a very sort of difficult to use technology. There's more friction, obviously, like our platform was in its infancy. And so we were going to have a lot of blemishes, growing pains and things like that. So where is there an existential value proposition where there's a problem that's so significant that they don't care if it's an early stage technology or it's not perfect. They just need something. 
And so it was really working with the med- medical device industry to try and increase the adoption of these higher value emerging technologies that are better for physicians and patients, but the learning curves are just too long and traditional training pathways were no longer working as well. So we really had a laser focus on that market um, at our inception, and that's really uh, helped us scale very rapidly to where we are today. Yeah, and you, you know, obviously COVID has been a terrible thing, right? But it's really amazing also to see uh, the entrepreneurship uh, and the acceleration in certain businesses. And we see it, you know, both in terms of the way, you know, the sales forces of our companies are now dealing with uh, clinicians, uh, usually remotely now, uh, how training has shifted entirely online in terms of, you know, know, just medical education. Um, And what I can imagine, and maybe tell tell me about the experience of OsoBR during COVID, I can imagine this has really, uh, you know, accelerated your, your business and adoption, the ability, you know, for clinicians not to have to attend a course, to be able to do it in their office or or, or what have you. Tell us what has happened during COVID and, and importantly, what persists, do you think, beyond COVID? <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, I can definitely describe kind of, you know, what my and our experience was as we kind of entered this, this whole uh, pandemic and this crisis where, you know, in, in the early days, uh, I don't think anybody knew what was going to happen. And so, you know, even how this whole year has played out, you know, some people felt maybe this would be short-lived. Um, maybe this is going to be like this forever, or maybe this is going to be temporary. So they're kind of like two extremes and then a, in the middle ground. But, you know, some of our partners um, in the medical device space were really looking ahead and, and doing some careful thinking, uh, had a sense that even if we get through to the other side of this, which it seems like we will, to a certain extent, it'll be hard to backpedal from some of uh, the convenience of being able to do these things remotely at home without needing to travel as much and be away from your family. So, you know, better to invest now, solve the problem today, and also be ready for the problems of the future. So there was a, a period of uncertainty, but it was brief. And then, you know, we saw an explosion of, of interest. And the clearer that it became that not only was this crisis going to drag on for far longer than I think anybody uh, had anticipated, but that many of these restrictions seem like they're going to remain in place or many of these behaviors such as the desire for remote labs and and learning are are also going to remain so uh, we've seen a real sort of crystallization of that burst of demand and and it's it's been staying quite steady and you know asking what does the new normal look like it's hard to say and like i said you could even look at at telemedicine like human beings are, are creatures of habit and comfort and we like to go back to where we were before but a lot of the changes to adapt to COVID, um, you know, from people working remotely uh, to some of the technological changes, it's it's hard to backpedal from some of these things because they are quite transformational and it's 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 pretty significant what's happening. So I think once this infrastructure is in place, a lot of it will remain and be part of the process. And I think on the behavioral side, I think people are going to enjoy learning this way. It's just much more convenient and also feels cutting edge. And then I think what's most unclear to me is how healthcare institutions and hospitals and even industry itself, which of these restrictions are just going to to stay in place um, just as a precautionary measure or just because sometimes it's hard to undo changes that you've made. So, you know, will reps continue to have the same access to hospitals in the operating room and uh, the whole supply chain? It's it's, it's unclear. And I think everybody's trying to prepare for worst case scenario where uh, you don't have a choice uh, but to be remote. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with, with that. I mean, I think in many ways, you know, hospitals have been looking for a way to, not that this, uh, you know, this is really sort of coincidental with uh, COVID, but I think they've been looking for a way to really restrict access of the reps of the hospital. And I think obviously it was appropriate, totally appropriate during COVID, but something tells me that's probably going to remain a more the reality of things rather than going back to the way it was done. Um, you know, uh, you know, on the flip side, I can see that, it, you know, and I feel this too, you know, in some ways we're so much more productive by being able to stay home, by being able to do everything that we need to do at home. I mean, you can work at all hours and we see that with our companies and the way they train and educate uh, the clinicians. They no longer have to take off from, you know, from work. They just log on at night and they can get their education. So there's something, you know, which is terrific about that. But the thing that we miss sometimes is the in-person dialogue and sort of informal dialogue that can occur when, you know, when clinicians get together in a training room. And I'm, I'm curious how you think about that aspect. Is there a way to continue to leverage the technology to include almost a more community-based experience or, or is that something that will, you think will kind of return in a post COVID world as people will still seek that, you know, sort of community? Yeah, I mean, there's some element of in-person interaction that is, it's just thrilling, it's fun. I mean, it's what we, especially if like you're a physician, generally you like people and being around them, not not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but this technology does allow you to be connected in a way that is certainly more significant than uh, over Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams. And so, you know, it's, and it's not just VR, other technologies out there, but, you know, in Oso VR, like if you had an Oculus Quest over there, both of us could jump in to a virtual operating room together and we could go over a surgical plan. We could run through the procedure. We could even just high five and just kind of laugh and heckle each other while we're sharing clinical tips, tricks, and pearls. And it's really interesting, um, you know, when we've done these collaborative training sessions, like really during like peak uh, of quarantine and stay at home, uh, a lot of people, the first thing out of their mouth would be like, wow, this is the first time I've been around another person in weeks. And it just sort of slipped out. And it's funny, it's when you're, when you're in VR with someone it, you really feel that sense of presence, like you're there with them. It, it's, it feels like it's them and you're physically present. So these technologies do have the ability to sort of recreate that experience without people needing to travel halfway around the world. Yeah, that's amazing. I, you know, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you can create really a virtual training session with multiple participants. Uh, uh, and and just like, I mean, uh, not that I have much experience in the gaming world, but there's whole gaming communities, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're competing against other people, you're interacting with other people. So I guess it shouldn't be different in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's a really unique opportunity to sort of scale expertise and to connect people so that, you know, we could have more knowledge sharing. And it's just, it's easier for you to meet more physicians and learn more because you don't have to travel to some really expensive course halfway around the world just to spend five minutes with someone, right? You can take 30 minutes and spend some one-on-one -on -one time with uh, some of the leading surgeons around the world. And what's, what's really exciting to me is that you can 
not only be with someone virtually, but now there are technologies that allow you to bring them in the operating room with you, right? You know, you're seeing companies like Proximy, Explore Surgical, Avail, and like in the operating room now, like you can remotely assist people. And, you know, these could be people that you have deep relationships now because you've been with them in VR for hours. And then now it's like the main event and they're here to, to help you. They know your blind spots and, you know, making sure that you're successful. And, and, and like as a teacher, seeing someone succeed, it's also very rewarding. And the way that we used to do this was, it, I guess it kind of worked, but, you know, we'd either fly, like I'd fly out to watch like an expert surgeon for a day or two. And I just kind of stand there in the operating room or they'd fly out to me and, you know, they'd watch me do a surgery, but give up like two to three days of taking care of patients and, you know, mostly just sitting around in a hotel room. And it's just, it's not a very efficient use of everybody's time. And now you can help way more people without the inconvenience of travel and also spend time in a virtual setting with people as well. So I'm very excited as, you know, we start to implement this kind of new digital infrastructure for remote learning and assessment to increase the adoption of these higher value procedures. And I think at the end of the day, it's it's going to be a much more rewarding experience and, and a connected uh, kind of profession. I'm, I'm sure that conferences to some extent will come back in courses and you'll still have that opportunity to go sing karaoke with all of your best friends uh, at what is supposed to be an educational course for surgery, uh, which is how they always end up. But, um, you know, these technologies are going to allow you to objectively and in a connected manner uh, improve much faster and utilize better technologies. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I want to go back to uh, an earlier part of the conversation when you're talking about, you know, your transition into this um, uh, business, you know, creating this business and into entrepreneurship. And, and I'm curious, you know, the, you know, as you did that, what were the biggest challenges you faced uh, moving from, you know, clinician to entrepreneur, you know, to CEO, and now you're growing the company, but what, what have been the biggest surprises or the biggest challenges um, that you faced? Um, wow. I mean, I, I don't know if I could fit that into a, <laughs> a podcast sized answer. You know, it's been a, a very, I guess, educational journey and a growth opportunity for me. I think probably the first challenge I encountered and, um, you know, I, I would say that I've seen this in other physicians who are trying to get involved in, in technology or making the transition to entrepreneurship is that, you know, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you know everything. And it only takes you so far. And I think it was really in one of my first investor pitches where like I came in and like, I think my pitch was literally like, I'm a doctor, like give me money. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone was like, that's so amazing that you're a doctor. And 10 seconds later, they're like, okay, like, you know, what's your five-year forecast? Like, what are your COGS? Like your sales and marketing expense? What's your CAC LTV? And they're just like getting into it. And I realized like how little I knew and just like, you know, all that credibility is, is very helpful, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be a great person to run a business, let alone a technology business, which is also unique, where I see a lot of people transitioning from med device, metal and plastic, and software is a bit of a unique world. Um, and so th there's a bit of a transition there too. So that that humbling, I think, was uh, one of the first lessons that I learned that I'm like, okay, this is like internship and residency. I'm going to have to start from scratch again. Um, and here we go. And then just constantly uh, being open-minded, like, you know, as a CEO, you know, I see my job as, as hiring people that are better at their jobs than I am. So, you know, everybody in a way is, is better and smarter than me. So I have to constantly be learning from everyone. And also 
I think another thing is in medicine, I find a lot from medicine and surgery have carried over in a really great way. Like, you know, being empathetic is, you know, a lot of, especially in software, it's, it's actually not too common. So the fact that you can talk to people that you're nice, that you understand the challenges of life and that we're all human, uh, people have told me that that's actually rather unique in a work environment and software. So that's something you can bring. And also in surgery, you know, not sleeping and being ready for anything and able to handle crisis uh, while staying level-headed have been extremely useful. Now, the world of surgery, especially in medicine, it's a bit militaristic and hierarchical. There's a chain of command and you just, you say what needs to happen and then it happens. And um, at least the way our organization runs, you can't lead by just telling people what to do. You have to lead through influence um, and you have to allow people to sort of make their own decisions um, so that you can create a sustainable infrastructure that is scalable because you're not going to be able to make every single decision in the company. So um, it's, it's, Definitely took me a while to learn that it's not like you have to say like, hey, like I need you to you know put a cast on this patient. It's like, hey, we have this problem and we need to solve it by this time. And then let's see what you come up with. And then we can all jointly decide what direction to go, um, just as an example. So leading through influence um, and also, you know, being humbled and learning from people. Uh, our advisors, our investors, uh, our leadership and executive team have been some of the key lessons uh, that have eased my transition and that I would encourage others to do uh, in the early days. And certainly, like I look to other physician innovators who, you know, have gone very far and and finding them as mentors is really great because they understand sort of uh, both your your strengths and also your blind spots. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask you, you know, how did you learn that? I mean, what you, you, you've pointed out are, you know, I think really, you know, subtle nuances of um, of leadership. Was it just sort of the raw experience and being hit over the head with, uh, you, you know, uh, with maybe doing things and it not working out and sort of learning uh, through experience? Did you have uh, particular mentors who advised you? So what, what, how did you learn things? Probably the main way is making mistakes um, and owning up to them. And, you know, it's like kind of like a series of micro failures. Um, and so just, you know, not being scared to, to make a decision and, and be wrong and then learn from it. Um, but yeah, advisors are, are huge and key. And I'm, I'm just really lucky um, you know, some of the friends that I grew up with that, that I really trust, like my best friend from preschool um, is an advisor to the company. He's a serial entrepreneur, uh, sold his last company to Google. So, you know, he's been a great resource. Um, advisors from the technology industry. Uh, I've been very lucky to, uh, I'm on the uh, health technology division as a director for uh, the Consumer Technology Association. So there's, that's just an incredible resource. Uh, our investors, um, including Signalfire, Kaiser Permanente Ventures and GSR Ventures, uh, have huge portfolio companies of uh, basically the leading uh, medical technology companies. So, you know, you have like Medibol and Explorer Surgical and, and, and these other companies that I can, I can go to these other CEOs and founders as peers and, and get their advice on, you know, oftentimes there'll be a problem that you face that they haven't, and then a problem that they face that you haven't. And you can do this exchange of ideas and uh, basically work together. And that, that peer advice is so important because this world moves so quickly, as we've all seen this year, that you really need people who are kind of at the same stage that you're at so that you're facing the same problem set. Because in 2021, uh, you know, our, our stage of company is going to face, be facing a relatively different problem set um, and, and landscape than we are today. So th that's been 
uh, probably the biggest thing. And, and then I'd say also um, some accelerator programs we had the opportunity to participate in. So like MedTech Innovator uh, was one which was great, uh, which I made some lifelong friends from and uh, get great advice from that ecosystem. And uh, Plug and Play is another one. So um, just, just, a, just, I mean, really looking everywhere and anywhere for people who are willing to spend time with you and, and believe in you and, and just, uh, just hear you out and, and provide their input. Certainly it's, you know, you get two advisors and three pieces of advice. So uh, sometimes it's a bit challenging to figure out what to actually do. Uh, but just having someone listen to you is half the battle. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, one, one thing that I think can be incredibly educational, but it's grueling and, and painful is uh, raising capital. Um, and, you know, the you know, it's you're going to hear a lot of different things out there on the fundraising trail, you know, some of which you know, you, you appropriately discard, but if you listen and, and you meet enough, uh, smart people, you can take away so much that they can be, um, integrated into the business. I'm really curious your experience raising capital, you know, as a first time entrepreneur, what was that like? Uh, and, and that, you know, one of the real problems we face today is there's a real funding gap at the earliest stages of a company. There are not too many small funds out there that are willing to, you know, take the risk at the earliest stages. So tell us a little bit about the fundraising and, you know, how you, your advice to other entrepreneurs who are out there trying to get their first round of capital in and lessons you learned there. Um. <laughs> I definitely, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm an expert in fundraising or master of the process, right? Like we raised, uh, two priced rounds, um, you know, with some notes in between. Um, so, uh, I would say that early on I was incredibly fortunate. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I do think that my background was doing a fair amount of the work for me as I was kind of, uh, taking off the training wheels. And then we were very lucky to get started, uh, when VR was very hot. The hype was high. And like, you know, if you had VR in the name of your company, it was kind of like, you know, having Bitcoin, uh, in, in the name of your company, right. It's just, uh, or blockchain. And so, you know, uh, people were just, we, uh, my co-founder and I won an early award and, and a lot of people wanted to invest. So, um, there wasn't a lot of work in the early days. And then our seed investor actually found us, uh, they had done a market map and basically, uh, kind of identified this as a major emerging market and us as the leader in the space. So, a lot of the early fundraising work, I just really lucked out, to be honest. Um, but I'll say that with the recent, um, you know, we recently closed a $14 million Series A led by Kaiser Permanente Ventures uh, a couple of months ago, which is really, I mean, I can't tell you how thrilling that is personally. And it feels like a once in a career opportunity. And we're just really excited uh, to have their backing and, and their validation that this is a, a very important global problem that Osa VR is a company to solve it. But I'll say that, you know, there was a big step function between raising our seed and our series A and expectations were much higher. Um, and that was a, a really interesting process. I think some of it was, um, you know, good fundamentals, like you need, you definitely need to be organized. You need to iterate and, um, you do really need to run a process. Um, there is a certain time expectations and, and, and groupings where, um, you can basically keep momentum in your favor and, and you keep learning from every conversation. Um, but then there was some things that were just a little out of our control, um, where <laughs> this, the introduction of COVID right towards the end of our fundraising, um, was, for a couple of weeks seen as a huge disaster. And all of a sudden there was this kind of 
like feeling amongst the people we were talking to that like, wait a minute, this might be a very good thing for your business. And suddenly this kind of like very scary thing turned into this like acceleration factor. And, and suddenly, you know, we, we have Kaiser giving us a term sheet and everything's coming together very quickly. So I think you often read about, there is without a doubt, I mean, there's some entrepreneurs um, and founders out there who are incredibly gifted and skilled and, you know, can raise a lot of money, create transformational businesses very quickly, like we've seen this. Uh, but there are a lot of out there who are successful and, you know, they are skilled and they are intelligent, but luck really does have a lot to do with it. And I don't want to discount that, you know, we've been very fortunate when it comes to uh, how fundraising has gone uh, up to this point. Um, I think a lot of it has been good fundamentals and good planning and the support of our investors, but also some of these market dynamics, you can't argue, uh, really favored us. Yeah. Yeah. There's no uh, substitute for being on kind of that, uh, on the wave, right. And having the wave that you can ride as opposed to trying to make the wave. So, uh, there's a real benefit to that, but, uh, but you gotta be prepared. And it sounds like you guys were, um, it, you know, as you talk to your clinical peers, I mean, I think this is always a fascinating topic is clinicians that want to start a company that have a kind of an entrepreneurial bent. I mean, how do you do you do you talk to some of your 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 peers uh, and how do you advise them about ideas they may have? Um, yes, I get a lot of input about this. This is something I'm, I'm really passionate about um, because I do think that innovation, um, especially within medicine um, and entrepreneurship, are, are lifelong pursuits and skills that you have to develop over an entire career and not something that you're just going to pick up in six months. Uh, so I try and encourage, you know, see if there are ways within the traditional uh, medical training pathways to incorporate more uh, business and technology education uh, to give people a better foundation. I think, you know, probably one of the best ways to get started is is to get involved with a technology company as an advisor to just sort of understand how the whole process works and get involved as, as much as you can. I, I get a lot of people approaching me with inventions and ideas. Um, and often what I find is that they're they're very um, small scale, or they already exist. And, uh, you know, I, I try and encourage people. I'm like, if this is something that you're potentially going to drop out of medicine for and go full time with, you know, anticipate that you're going to spend five to seven years of your life. Uh, it's going to be incredibly emotionally exhausting and you're going to give it your all. You want to make sure at the other end of the tunnel that it's going to have the impact that you really want. Um, and also just, you know, that you're not going to be living out of a trailer. Uh, <laughs> there's certain realities with entrepreneurship. It's a lot less glamorous than, uh, than people make it out to be. And it's high risk. So that's something I, I really encourage people to think about it and make sure that, you know, this is a true uh, venture scale idea that, that could massively change the way that uh, medicine is, is practiced uh, around the world. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it. And from a clinician perspective, uh, you know, that the technology and the invention is one thing. But as you've been talking about it, I mean, there's the business model, there's intellectual property, there's, um, you know, how you, uh, you know, how you uh, handle the operations and, and uh, manufacturing. And, you know, it, there's no shortage of complexity. Uh, but it's really great to hear you, you know, engaging like that and and uh, and helping people, you know, think about making that transition. So it's uh, that's a great thing. Well, this has really been, uh, you know, a fascinating discussion. I've learned a ton, Justin, and and you guys are addressing such a real unmet need that has a chance to 
to not only improve outcomes, but, uh, um, but you know, make it much more consistent. And, you know, you talk about, you know, you think about democratization of care, which is kind of a buzzword. And we think about that in the context of robotics, but it really starts with the training and, and, uh, and you guys are doing an amazing job there. So I really want to thank you for joining today and, um, and really wish you and the company the best of luck. Thank you so much. And thank you again for having us on the show. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you.